So years later, the prophet John was calling the Jews to repent for the kingdom of Yahweh was about to come. Israel's exile was about to come to an end, but they had to be baptized in order to show their desire in their hearts to be cleansed and to pledge their total allegiance to Yahweh. When Jesus arrived on the scene, John baptized Jesus, showing that Jesus identified with John's message and would continue John's ministry. At that moment, the Spirit of Yahweh came down and anointed Jesus as his prophet, king, and priest. Now, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So John is the prophet. He is the prophet that breaks the silence after 400 years, that they haven't had a word from God in all these years. And he comes on the scene, and he sounds like a good First Testament prophet. You brood of vipers, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The axe is at the tree. So all these judgment languages. Now remember that what you have with the prophets is that they were prophesying the coming of the Assyrians and the Babylonians destroy the Jews if they did not repent. John's doing the same thing. He's predicting the coming of the Romans who are already here, but the Romans who are here have not yet cut them down with an axe yet, Israel. And so now the axe is at the tree, and the tree has regrown over the last 400 years, the tree of Israel. But Israel's not producing fruit anymore. The axe is ready, and God is going to use the Romans as an axe to cut them down in judgment if they don't repent and join the kingdom of God. And he says that he is here to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so the Messiah shows up on the scene. Now, we often think of baptism as repentance of sins, but that's not exactly what it was. In the ancient world, baptism was tied into washings. Baptism is just the same idea as washings. And remember, the Jews did washings. They cleansed their sins. And the book of Leviticus gives all these different reasons for the cleansing of sins, bodily discharges, touching dead bodies, and having sin in your life. All these reasons why you would do ritual purifications. So John is picking up that. What that is is cleansing yourself of your sins so that you can come into the kingdom of God. So that's the one idea. But the other idea is that baptism was also used in the Roman world. In the Roman world, you got baptized to show your allegiance to a God. And the Jews did this too, because the first time you became a part of the Abrahamic covenant, you would be cleansed to be joined the covenant of this God. And so it was a way of pledging your absolute and total allegiance to a God. And when you baptize yourself, what you were basically saying is, I pledge my allegiance to this God and no other God. And I will obey no other God and have no other authority in my life other than this one. Some people have asked, why did Jesus need to be baptized if he had no sin to repent of? Well, that's not why he was being baptized. Remember that baptism that John's preaching is not just a repentance of sins, but also a pledging your allegiance to the kingdom of God turning away from your old allegiances and pledging your allegiance to God. So by Jesus getting baptized, he's not necessarily cleansing of sins, but he's showing his connection to the kingdom of God. He's showing that he's a part of the kingdom of God and that he is going to do its will on earth as it is in heaven. But here's the other reason. John is the prophet. He's the first prophet in 400 years. And every king and every prophet gets anointed by a prophet. Kings and prophets are always anointed. And they would anoint them with oil on their heads. So, so John, Jesus is going under the water. And he's getting anointed by the prophet. 
And so what the prophet who represents the First Testament is saying is that this is what the First Testament is looking forward to. This is who the First Testament has been talking about. All the prophets, because I am the prophet, I represent all prophets, and I also represent the Mosaic Covenant. All the prophets in the Mosaic Covenant are saying, this is the Messiah. I approve. So he's getting the approval of the prophet. But when heaven opens up and the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove, not a dove, but like a dove would descend, and settles on him, this is the anointing of God. And God then says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. And so now God is approving of Jesus as well and anointing him as well. And so now the reader knows that both the prophet and God two members of the divine council of Yahweh and God being the most important member are approving of Jesus as the Messiah. And this launches him into his ministry. This is when his ministry begins. Now notice that he's led here and the spirit of God comes upon him. So Jesus is then led by the spirit into the wilderness. And so he goes in the wilderness for 40 days led by the spirit. This isn't something that he just kind of decided to fast, but he is led there in order to duplicate Israel's 40-year journey through the wilderness, where they failed to trust Yahweh and rebel. Jesus, however, resisted the temptation of Satan and remained faithful to Yahweh and his law, proving that he was the more perfect Israel. He would become what Israel could never be and redeem humanity. He truly was the sinless God-man Messiah. So the Spirit leads in the wilderness, and the wilderness he spends 40 days there. He does not eat or drink anything. We know on average you can go three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food. So 40 days without water or food is a miraculous sustaining of God. And so he is out in the wilderness. He is breaking. The whole point of fasting is to weaken the flesh. Because when your flesh is weak, then you find out who you really are. When you, when you don't have all the comforts of life, fasting is not just, I'm going to give up chocolate for Lent. Fasting is... Um, fasting is actually making the flesh intentionally weak so that you find out who you really are left to your own devices. And then that drives you to God because when you're weak and you can't take care of yourself, then you're driven to the arms of God and you're absolutely 100% dependent upon him to take care of you. And then you develop, you nurture that intimate connection with him. And this is what Jesus does. He's weakening the human nature so that there's nothing in himself that they can depend on. His mind is going to be weakened. His body is going to be weakened. His emotions are going to be weakened. He's hangry, maybe tired. He's lonely. He's been everything that would make you strong has been stripped of him. And then the devil shows up in his weakest moment. The devil shows up and tempts him. And he says, since you are the son of God. Now your Bibles say if. But the Greek there is actually what's called a first conditional class sentence and basically means since. You can have different kinds. If and we know you are. If and we know that you're not. And if and we don't know. This kind of Greek structure is if and we know you are. So the devil already knows that he's the Messiah. He knows that he's the Son of God. What he wants them to do is not trust God. So he says, God hasn't been taking care of you. Look at you. Take care of yourself. Since you are the Son of God, since you are the prophet and the Messiah, you have the power to do it yourself. Take matters in your own hands. Trust in yourself. Trust in your own flesh. And Jesus says, no. 
Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes out of God's mouth. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus, like Israel, he has become like Adam, where he's being tested in the garden, and he's becoming like Israel, where they're tested in the wilderness. Except where Adam had everything, and Israel also had everything, even though they were in the wilderness, God was taking care of them, providing the miracles. Jesus has nothing. He is tempted to take matters in his own hands. And just like the wilderness generation said, God, where are you? You just brought us out here to die and starve and die of thirst. You're nowhere to take care of us. Moses in Deuteronomy is talking about that very event where they're complaining. And he says, if only you had believed and trusted that man does not live on bread alone, but the word of God that comes in his mouth. That's the lesson you should have done. You should have known that God would take care of you, and that's all you need is God. And Jesus quotes that exact phrase saying, I do. I get it. I get what Israel never got. I am trusting what Israel never did. So then the devil says, fine, prove it. If God really is taking care of you, throw yourself off this cliff. You can quote scripture. I can too. And he quotes Psalms and says, and God will not let the anything harm you. He will send his angels to take care of you. And Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay? Now, he's quoting Deuteronomy again, right from the wilderness as well. And Moses was talking about the wilderness generation. He says, you constantly just tested God over and over. No matter how many times he took care of you, you questioned him, you doubted him, and you made him prove who you are, he is over and over and over and over again. You should have not done that. If God is God and he's proven himself once, he doesn't need to prove it again. He will take care of you. He loves you. There's so many evidences of his love and power. You didn't need to test him. Testing people and your friends and family and making them prove over and over again that they love you is insulting to them. It does not nurture your relationship with them. And so Jesus quotes that and says, I get that. I've lived with the Father for eternity, and I have read the word of God and seen his reputation. I don't need to prove that he loves and takes care of me. And in some ways, Jesus could also say, in the last 40 days, I haven't drank anything and I'm still alive. So there you go. God is taking care of me. And so he passes it. Then the devil says, okay, we all know that God makes you suffer before he rewards you, right? I mean, that's God's M.O. Most of the time he takes you through trials and makes you suffer. But these kingdoms already belong to me. If you bow down to me now, I won't make you suffer. I'll give them to you right now. Now, even if you could trust the devil... He does have the right, and he does the authority to do that. Even Jesus said he's the prince of this world. Therefore, he had the right to give this over. But Jesus knows two things. One, can't really test the devil. And two, it doesn't matter if he does it the quick way and he becomes the king of the entire world. Eventually, God's going to defeat the devil, and he'll lose it all if he got it from the devil. And the other thing is he would not ever want to wrong his God and the relationship that he has with them and hurt them. Like Joseph says, how could I sin against God and against Potiphar by doing this? But the other thing is, is that he's here to, very, to defeat the very thing that's offering him this. He's here to defeat the very thing that's offering him this. He refuses. And what he says is you will worship the Lord your God only. And he quotes Deuteronomy as well because Israel was worshiping the golden calf. And Jesus shows that he will only follow God. What does all this do? This shows you that he is the better Israel, the better Adam and Eve. Every single time we've read stories in the Bible, we're like, ooh, Abraham, oh, he failed. Ooh, Jacob, oh, he failed. Ooh, Elijah, oh, he failed. 
Ooh, Moses, oh, he failed. Oh, David, oh, he failed. Every time you read about somebody, he fails or she fails. And then you get to Jesus and every original reader would be like, oh, great, here we go. Another failure that's going to bomb it completely. We stopped hoping in the Messiah a long time ago. And then all of a sudden you're like, ooh, he didn't fail. And all of a sudden your ears are perked up and you're ready to really pay attention because he is the prophet, the king, and the priest that Israel and Adam were meant to be but never were. And at this point, the story begins to change drastically. He does his first miracle. And when he goes into the wedding and he does his first miracle, this is very cool because what he does is he just doesn't turn water into wine. He turns the ceremonial water into wine, the water that is used for the cleansing of sins, the same water that is connected to baptism. He takes the water. Now, here's the thing. That water is only allowed to be used for the cleansing of sins, period. You're not allowed to drink it. To drink it and treat it as normal is unholy. But when Jesus turns the water into wine, he's showing that he has the right to do it because he is the law. He is the lawgiver. He is the author of the law. But the other thing is he's not really changing the law because he actually is going to cleanse the sins of the people. Water and wine have nothing to do with each other. The ceremonial water of cleansing is connected to priesthoods and is connected to the cleansing of sins. Wine is connected to the joy and the life that the Messiah will bring. Priests and kings have nothing to do with each other. One man is not allowed to be both. What Jesus is doing is taking the ceremonial cleansing of sins water and he's transforming it into the wine, which is the sign of the Messiah. And remember, the sign of the Messiah coming is an abundance of wine, grain, and olive oil in the land. And all of a sudden, the first miracle that Jesus does is an abundance of wine. And he is basically saying, I am here. This is his calling card. And by multiplying the wine, he's showing, I am here. I am the Messiah. But by doing it with the ceremonial cleansing of sins water and bringing together, he's connecting the king and the priest together, just like Zechariah had a vision that one day the king would also be a priest. And just like David in Psalm 110 said, you are a king and you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek, talking about the Messiah. Jesus isn't actually changing the law. He's combining things together. And so he's showing that I have come. And by doing at a wedding, he's saying, I am the bridegroom that has come. Remember then Jeremiah 31, 31, God says, a day will come when you will no longer call me master, but you will call me husband. And then how many parables did Jesus tell referring to himself as the bridegroom that is coming for his bride? And later, Paul is going to pick up on that theme. And so he's saying, I am the groom that has arrived. I am the king who's bringing abundance of wine. And I am the priest that's going to cleanse your sins. And then later at the end of his life, he takes the wine and says, this is for the cleansing of your sins. But he already connected the wine and the water together in his first miracle. And then the very end of his life, he's now picking up the wine and saying, it's my blood. Blood has nothing to do with wine. Blood has nothing to do with water. So now he's connected the water and the wine together, and then he's going to connect the wine and the water to the blood of him, and he's connecting all of it and saying that I'm not just king, I'm also priest, and I'm also prophet because I'm going to teach in a way that nobody else has, like Moses, and even better, but I'm also the lamb. And he's tying all these threads into himself. 
all these threads that the Bible has been developing for hundreds of years in the First Testament, Jesus begins to pull them into himself, saying, I am, I am, I am. I am the water, I am the priest, I am the prophet, I am the king, I am the lamb, I am the wine, I am the blood. And it just keeps doing this over and over and over again. He proves that he is the Messiah. Then he goes on and he also multiplies the bread. Over and over and over again, most scholars believe that the most common miracle that Jesus did was the bread. It was like every time he went somewhere and spoke, he multiplied bread for people. Three times in the Gospels, and the implications it might be that this is something he did regularly. So remember, the sign of the Messiah is abundance of bread, wine, and olive oil. And so he keeps multiplying the bread over and over again. He says, I am the bread of life. And remember, this is the bread that God miraculously provided in the wilderness for Israel. Jesus isn't just saying, I'm the one that provides the bread. He's saying, I am the bread, meaning that I am God and I am the provision of God. I am the provision of God for sins. I am the provision of God for removing evil. I am the provision of God for joy in the land. And he keeps doing this miracle over and over and over again. This and everything else he's going to keep doing, this is why Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you really knew the Father, you would know me. If you really understood what God was doing with the wine and the bread and the water and the sacrificial lamb, it should be so obvious to you that I am God. There's no way that God would allow me to do miracles if I was blaspheming him and claimed to be God and was not. And yet the miracles I'm doing are absolutely 100% connected to everything that God has done in the First Testament. If you really knew the Father, you would know me. This is his calling card, and you should recognize it, because the First Testament spent 39 books developing the calling card of God and the Messiah so that you would recognize him when he came. Jesus, after his first miracle, then goes to his hometown. In his hometown, he reads from Isaiah 61 which proclaimed the coming of the prophet king, who would deliver the poor, heal the sick, and set the captives free. This passage that he reads from is about freeing those oppressed by the corrupt systems of the world, as well as the bondage of sin. Isaiah 61 is very clear that the Messiah king prophet would come, and he would free humans from not only the oppression of the world governments and all that kind of stuff, but also from oppression of sin. It was both a spiritual and physical deliverance. So once he gets done reading from this, the coming of the prophet king, he closes the scroll up and he says, today this is fulfilled in me. Basically he says, I am that king prophet that Isaiah was speaking about. Now by reading Isaiah 61, And claiming to be that, he's also saying, I'm also the Messiah in every other prophetic book. Because everybody believed that 61 was the same man as every other prophecy of the Messiah. And so he says, I am this. I am the fulfillment. This passage was about the Messiah subduing the chaos and driving the serpents out of the garden, like Israel was meant to do. But they could not see him as that. Remember, this is the hometown that he grew up in. 
They remember him as a little boy that was running around people's feet and they can't see him as a man, let alone authoritative anymore. And this is with kind of the idea that Jesus is a prophet is not accepted in his own town. A lot of times people have a hard time seeing people that they knew growing up come into a position of authority or skill or influence or some kind of way. So they're like, what the heck? There's no way. You're, you're Joseph's son, and if you are his son, because we all know about that. How in the world could you, the illegitimate child, be used by God in this kind of way? And, and we never saw anything totally special from you as a kid. You can't be it. What Jesus then did is he goes and he says, just as God took Elijah, God's prophet, and Israel rejected him and did not accept the miracles that he did, nor turned to God in his age, but instead God sent him to the widow and Phoenicia, the Gentiles, and it was the Gentiles that accepted him, the widow Gentile that accepted him. The Syrian general Gentile warrior that accepted him. The, the Shunammite that accepted him. Over and over again, it was the Gentiles that accepted Elijah, not Israel. In fact, Israel tried to kill Elijah just like they killed all the other prophets. Just as God did that with Elijah, so he is doing it now with you today. Israel, under the time period of Elijah, was one of the most evil time periods of Israel's history. So Jesus just said, you people are just as evil as those people back then. And you will reject God's messenger, me. And you will try to even kill me like you did Elijah. You're no better than your fathers. At that they were ticked. Absolutely ticked that this little boy who grew up in their town had the audacity to accuse them of being evil like Elijah's time period and not accepting the things of God. So what did they do? They fulfilled Jesus' prophecy by trying to kill him. They literally dragged him to the cliff and tried to throw him off, but he just walked through the crowd. I would have loved to have seen that one. I was like, what does that look like? He just walks through. And so what he's saying is, I am this Messiah. Not only has God... And John declared that this is the Messiah, but Jesus then proven that he is the Messiah through the wilderness, a sinless Messiah. But then he also proved it to everybody by doing miracles. And now he's actually declaring it with his own words, that I am the king prophet that you've been awaited waiting. This would set the wheels in motion for his crucifixion. When they show that they were willing to kill him, the clock is now ticking for his crucifixion. 